Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thumb. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. In this week's episode, we take a look at the issue of child marriage in Malaysia and speak to people pushing for change. We also interview Aisha Llewellyn about writing the story Crisis and Complicity, for which she read hundreds of declassified documents. Last but not least, we introduce our first long-form profile on a blogger who became a household name after he was sued by Singapore's Prime Minister. The case of a 41-year-old man marrying an 11-year-old girl pushed the practice of child marriage in Malaysia into the global spotlight. The new government, led by Pakatan Harapan, was expected to bring progressive reform to the country, but activists have been disappointed by their reluctance to move on this issue. From Kuala Lumpur, Tamina Kaushji examines how the debate on child marriages has spilled over into the political sphere. On May 9, 2018, Malaysia made history by voting out the ruling coalition of 61 years, ushering in what many hoped would be an era of dynamic change. Three short months later, the country is once again in the spotlight, but for a very different reason. Within the first hundred days of the new Pakatan Harapan-led government, the country has been locked in a fierce debate over the marriage of a 41-year-old Muslim man to an 11-year-old girl in the deeply conservative Malay heartland state of Kelantan. Child marriage is a deeply politicized and often polarizing issue in Malaysia, which is a Muslim-majority state. Those calling for a ban on child marriage are demanding the government raise the minimum age of marriage to 18 with no exceptions. Other Malaysians have invoked Islam, long-standing cultural practices, and fighting poverty as legitimate reasons to support child marriage. Aisha Hasri, founder of Spot Community Campaign, Malaysia's only puberty education program for primary schoolgirls, believes the best way to address child marriages is through educating schoolgirls, the most highly impacted demographic. We do that as a solution to address the issues of underage sexual activities and to ensure that youth, our young people, actually have better information and access um, and, and know how to demand for their rights. Malaysian civil and Sharia law both allow for children under 18 to be married with parental consent. Aisha believes that comprehensive sexuality education is necessary from a young age to help children advocate against child marriage. Comprehensive sexuality education involves not only teaching young people about anatomy and reproductive health, but also concepts of consent, gender equality, and sexual abuse. She hopes that such education will also educate parents who pressure their children into marriage and change societal mindsets. Basically, with our solution, um, um, we give back the power to them, to the children. We go into schools, we teach 9 to 12 year olds how to take care of their bodies, how to say no, we tell them what's good touch and what's bad touch, and, and, and how to what boundaries they should set for themselves. Because boundaries... Generally, yes, people know, oh, you shouldn't be touching my vagina. But it starts off with something else. It starts off with, you know, um, I'm, I'm holding hands with you. It starts off with saying, I love you. Comprehensive sexuality education is not yet mandatory in the Malaysian school system. The new government has also been resistant to child marriage reform. According to the Malaysian government, there have been about 
15,000 recorded child marriages in the past 10 years. 10,000 of the underage marriages were Muslim, while 4,999 couples were non-Muslim. These alarming figures give some insight into the new government's eggshell approach towards child marriage. Yuren Chung, the acting executive director of Malaysia's women's aid organization, is attempting to open up a greater dialogue with the new government in order to make this change possible. The key to this, he says, is through greater representation for women in parliament. By having a more gendered perspective in policymaking, uh, we will see, I think, uh, more uh, uh, emphasis and priority on um, the girl's perspective, perspective of, of, of a girl and who would become a woman. Uh, so that's one element. I think you, you know, I've been to meetings uh, before where uh, involving various government agencies where uh, the Ministry of Women was taking a, a, a relatively rights-based approach, basically saying this is not something that the Ministry of Women supports. Uh, but then only to have other ministries and other agencies to uh, not necessarily uh, full out say they support child marriage, but to you know, bring up all sorts of other kinds of reasons why child marriage is, is needed and is important. And those people are mostly uh, men. The Sharia court reacted to the recent case by giving the man a slap on the wrist. He was fined 1,800 ringgit or 439 USD for polygamy and solemnizing a marriage without the court's permission. The child has been sent back to Thailand, where she is under the care of the Social Development and Human Security Ministry in the southern province of Naratiwat. But this isn't just an isolated case. Other instances of child marriage have since been reported in the local media, further intensifying the debate. Meanwhile, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Women Dr. Wan Aziza Wan Ismail told Malaysian Parliament on August 16th that sex education could help curb child marriages on top of raising the minimum age of marriage to 18. However, she gave no timeline for legislating either approach. Clearly, law, tradition and culture perpetuate child marriage in Malaysia while weak politics ensures that the road to reform is long. That report was brought to you by Tamina Kauschi in Kuala Lumpur. In July this year, New Narrative published a story, Crisis and Complicity, looking at the relationship between then-US President Bill Clinton and then-Indonesian President Suharto during the Asian financial crisis. To write this story, Aisha Llewellyn went through hundreds of diplomatic cables, letters and transcripts. I sat down with Aisha to talk about crisis and complicity and how to handle declassified documents when reporting. Hello everyone, I'm here with Aisha Llewellyn who is New Narrative's Deputy Editor for Bahasa Indonesia and our Consulting Editor for North Sumatra including Aceh. Aisha wrote this incredible story about the dying days of the Suharto regime called Crisis and Complicity in which she went through over 500 declassified documents from the US to tell the story of Suharto and his fall from power. So can you tell us how we, we managed to get a hold of these documents and how we managed to get a hold of this story? What happened was uh, Bradley Simpson, who works for the National Security Archive, uh, made several Freedom of Information requests for the documents, um, actually for a packet of about 500. Um, which he then put online uh, after he'd read through them, and he offered us the chance to have a look at them as well at the same time. 
500 documents. That's yes. a lot of documents. How long did it take you to go through everything? Um, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, it took several weeks of reading them every day and sometimes reading a few and sometimes reading several every day. It probably took about two weeks to go through everything and start getting it all together and compiling everything together. We had 500, but they were cut up into different time periods. So we had 97 to May 1998, and then we had May 1998 on its own because that was a very busy period when the riots happened in Indonesia and also when Suharto resigned. So that was one packet on its own, and then we had the rest of 1998. So we had three different sections, and so I very quickly decided that I was going to focus on the 97 to 98 to May 1998 documents. And so that cut down the reading process after right, because that. Because that was the most busy period? Was there a specific reason? Uh, the reason that I decided to focus on that was because May 1998 has been written about a lot, but I was more interested in how we got to that point because I thought that that was something that hadn't really been explored so much. So I wanted to go back to 1997 and then chart how the crisis unfolded, the financial crisis, and then also how the Indonesian government kind of lost control along the way. And, and then that's how I decided to do it as a narrative piece where we would explain the story. Well, I'm a historian by training, uh, so I yes. totally appreciate that approach. Uh, for those of you who don't really know much about uh, Indonesia, uh, what happened really was that uh, Southeast Asian governments uh, and economies were propped up by high unsustainable levels of debt, creating a bit of a bu bubble. Yeah, the so, problem yeah. in Indonesia, sorry, PJ, to just uh, chip in, was that they were taking on um, short-term loans for long-term projects. So the projects weren't coming to fruition, they had nothing to show for it, but they then had to pay the loans back and then, of course, it... It all went downhill from there. So is there anything new? What do we learn from these documents? A lot of the information we did already know, but it was fascinating for me to see how it came out and the kind of behind-the-scenes information that we got. The uh, phone conversations between Suharto and Clinton were riveting. I couldn't stop reading them because they really kind of show you the close relationship that they had in their own words you know, the transcript of the telephone conversations, which I don't think that we'd seen before. And what's so important about that relationship is that then coloured pretty much all the decisions that the United States made in terms of supporting the IMF bailout to Indonesia and so many other things, including, you know, not chiding them strongly enough about the human rights abuses in East Timor and in other places. But you really get to see why that was. You really get to see how these two men spoke to each other and the kind of inside the relationship that they had. If anything, almost the sort of throwaway comments I found in the documents were more interesting than the hard historical data. So, for example, when Clinton says, oh, it's so great to hear your voice you know, to Zahato. it's I wouldn't even say that to my husband. And it's, and it's such a great, it's such a great quote. Um, How much of it is, is Clinton's legendary charm? I think he definitely was trying to keep Zahato sweet. Uh, it, you know, it probably was uh, his legendary charm, as you say, but I think he, he, he realized that quite early on in his presidency that, and this comes across in the documents, he realized quite early on that if he wanted to get into the Indonesian market, which at that time was one of the great emerging markets in Southeast Asia, if he wanted to get into that market, 
it had to go through Suharto because everything went through Suharto. Mm, There was no way of doing business in Indonesia unless you you went through him. So I think that he he kind of realized pretty early on which way his bread was buttered, to use a British expression. So tell us more about who wrote these uh, documents. I understand they're mostly um, uh, telegrams or uh, um, dispatches from cables from the ambassador, Jay Stapleton Roy. So Jay Stapleton Roy, as ambassador to Indonesia, uh, had to do reports on the social situation, what was happening with uh, with the riots, what was happening with the financial situation, uh, what was happening in politics, and he fed these reports back to Capitol Hill. There's lots of uh, lots of other things in the documents that were interesting. I mean, we had letters, for example, that were written by Bernie Sanders, Nancy Whoa. Pelosi, uh, several members of the Kennedy family. Uh, saying that they didn't think that the Clinton administration should support the IMF bailouts to Indonesia, for example. But the documents in that way are really a treasure trove of all different things. You know, you'll be reading cable after cable from Roy, uh, Jay Stapleton Roy, and sometimes, you know, it's just things are fine, or I had a meeting with someone from the bank, and he says he'll meet with someone next week, and it's, you know, and it's not very interesting. And then suddenly you get a letter from Bernie Sanders. So it was, it was just really fascinating to see the mix of different documents. I think a lot of people, and I know I've personally encountered this, want to know how reliable these sort of documents are. When you're writing a piece like this, the veracity of the documents is actually not necessarily always the central thing. So a good example of that would be what I called the most explosive document, which was the one that was written on the 7th of May, uh, 1998, which was when political officers from the US embassy in Jakarta solicited um, students uh, who had alleged that they had been kidnapped. Uh, These kidnappings had been going on for years, from 1996 onwards. Uh, Anyone who was thought to want to overthrow the Suharto regime uh, would go missing and they would turn up months later and say they'd been tortured. And so it, it was it was strange that, it, that on the 7th of May in 98, when this had been happening for two years, the Americans chose to suddenly try and solicit exactly who was behind these disappearances and kidnappings and where the students had been taken. So the document says that a political officer spoke to a member of the student association who says that who said that the kidnappings had been ordered by President Suharto, who had told Prabowo Subianto, Major General Prabowo Subianto, who's now perhaps going to be a presidential hopeful, to carry them out. And actually, Prabowo's spokesperson, I believe, did say that these are not uh, legal documents and that they shouldn't be taken at face value and I, do, I have to say I would agree with him right he said this recently he said after this you... after we published a piece on it the BBC published a piece on it and CNN approached Gurindra Party which is the party backing Prabowo for the presidential bid in 2019 I mean basically what he was saying was their hearsay and I would probably agree with that because we don't know also the names are redacted we don't really know the full story but what is so interesting about something like that is that the Americans then had that information. So the Americans, whether or not they believed it, knew that there was, even if it was just an allegation, they knew that there was an allegation against Prabowo Subianto, 
and also against Suharto. And what's so interesting then about that document is the next day it was followed on the 8th of May by a memo from the Pentagon, which suddenly stopped all military, joint military training exercises, the JSET program, between the United States and military and the Indonesian military. So whether or not the testimony on the 7th of May is true or not, it seemed to have repercussions. Right. We have correlation at least. Yeah, we have correlation at least. And it seems like the Americans were spooked by those comments and then they called off the joint training exercises. And even if they weren't convinced by the veracity of that document, why not? Yeah, these documents often, when as historians look at it, it tells us more about the person who wrote it yeah. and what they believed and how they yes. saw something rather than the veracity of what they were writing. Yeah. Right, And also you have to hold it in a sort of broader context. For example, the US may already have been thinking about cutting off uh, you know, joint military exercises or whatever, but they wanted um, other reasons or to find some other justification for doing so, you yeah. know, or to um, have other ammunition uh, when they negotiated with the Indonesians about why they were cutting it off. You know, there's a lot of context that I think uh, needs to be understood that we don't always have yeah. so that that's important cool well thank you very much Aisha that was a really really interesting article very well written I really I certainly enjoyed reading it and I thought as a, as a professional historian I was very impressed you know well thank uh, you that's very kind <laughs> you're welcome if you would like to read Aisha's story crisis and complicity you can find it on newnarratives.com in English and Bahasa Indonesia Roy Nung never saw himself as an activist but was propelled into the limelight after Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong sued him for defamation. The high-profile case ultimately ended with the court ordering him to pay the Prime Minister 150,000 Singapore dollars in damages, to be paid in instalments that will only end in 2033. Seeking a fresh start, Roy moved to Taiwan in 2016. Two years on, he sits down with Callum Stewart to look back on all that's happened. Rush hour in Taiwan's capital. Thousands of people flood into the city streets and metro stations. Here, Roy Nung is just another face in the crowd. Barely a few years ago, and in a different city, Roy's image was splashed across newspapers and on television screens. He'd be recognized in the streets and was a staple of taxi drivers' political commentary. Back then, Roy organized public rallies against the government, faced off against Singapore's prime minister in court, and ran in the general election. But he says none of this had been part of the plan. I didn't come up with uh, the aim to be an advocate on an issue. I think I was uh, an accidental activist, if you could call it, because I came out just being interested in writing. Roy's story began in May 2014. At the time, the then 34-year-old Singaporean had a secure job working as a patient coordinator in a government hospital. In his spare time, he ran a largely obscure blog examining politics in Singapore. I got to a stage at that time when I felt that I was quite happy and balanced in my life. And then that's when I started reflecting on society. And so I started writing on my blog because I wanted to present a different side of what I think Singapore society is to people, not just what the government wants to put out. 
Um, and then that's when I started writing. But as I started writing, I wanted it to be based on statistics and facts that I find out so that I could make my own analysis about them. And, and then that's when I found out the, the things that the government hasn't been transparent about. And that shocked me as I write about it. Roy's blog wasn't particularly popular, but publicly taking a stand on politics is considered by many in the Island Republic as a risky endeavour. His blog attracted the attention of his bosses, who began to feel concerned. Um, a month before I, you know, a month before I got sued, uh, my superiors, quite a few of them actually told me that they were aware of the blog, but they wanted to help me to uh, have more responsibilities at work so that I could do more at work and perhaps um, keep my job and perhaps not be too involved in the blog. So they were actually helping and they were, they spoke to me several times, so they were helpful. Among the issues that Roy wrote about was Singapore's state pension fund, the Central Provident Fund, commonly known as the CPF. In one blog post, he likened the management of the CPF to goings-on at a local evangelical church which had become embroiled in a corruption scandal. A few weeks later, a letter from the Prime Minister's lawyers arrived. I was surprised. I mean, I always expected that I would perhaps lose my job because I was writing my blog, but I never expected to get sued, get charged, because I'm not a politician and you just never consider that historically that's going to happen to you. The letter claimed that Roy had defamed the Prime Minister and demanded that he remove the article, apologise and compensate leasing Loon. He lost his job at the hospital less than a month later. For my company, I think they tried, at least the superiors, they tried to help. To, I think their intention was to move me away from the writing so that I could keep my job. But I was quite clear at that time that if I was going to lose my job, that was something that I was willing to accept and sacrifice because I knew that was coming. Um, what was surprising though was the way they did it. Uh, I understand that on the day that I was fired, a meeting was held in the morning to say that I would be fired. And they had a meeting with all the superiors. They got all my clicks out from the office. And then within half an hour, they got someone I've never seen before to help me pack. And they had a box to... And then, you know, I just had to get out within half an hour. My colleagues were shocked and I had one friend uh, my colleague as well who managed to meet me at the gate and who was, who was I think he was crying because he didn't understand why it could happen at such a speed um, so I thought that was partly to intimidate me The defamation case brought by the Prime Minister became a high profile affair Roy quickly became known as the first blogger to be personally sued by the country's most powerful man as his public profile grew, Roy began moving into activism. He began organising protests at Hong Lim Park, the only place in the city-state where Singaporeans can protest without a permit. He soon became a key figure in the Return Our CPF campaign, speaking at rallies in the park alongside other activists. Initially when I got sued and then we started doing the protests, I actually thought that you know, we could do three, four, five protests, people would join in, and then we could change the government. <laughs> that, that was never going to happen. But I think there was that gap and that point in time between perhaps 2011 to 2014 where there could be a possibility where if people were willing to let go of their fears and there were actually a pool of people who were willing to, who came to join the protests, who if we had 
united or if we had a consistent strategy to come together with that the government at that point didn't know how to challenge that and we could have an opening to break through. Protests are often regarded with scepticism in Singapore, where public order laws state that even a single person can constitute as an illegal assembly. Despite his repeated outings at Hong Lim Park, it became obvious to Roy that the protests lacked the strategic savvy or coherent demands to be seen as a serious social movement. I could start seeing that uh, the in, from the third protest when the numbers started falling uh, and then you recognize you know you you did all these protests but you should have an outcome people were waiting for an outcome as well they wanted to know the plan but you know when I was stood, I wasn't I didn't see myself as a leader where I could go out go out there and I had a strategic attempt to have plans and I had all these plans where we could um, gather people together and then change things. I didn't have that. In my mind, I was still speaking out because I was still raising awareness. It was like writing, but having a platform to speak up on it. So I didn't plan too much in advance because I didn't think about doing that. So I think that's part of the naivety about the advocacy that I was doing. Uh, I realized after that that there could be a lot more strategic planning to go on with, but uh, one of the other problems was that the advocacy circle in Singapore is really small and everyone is really busy doing all their own stuff. So how do you get like-minded people together to do that? That was a challenge. And the protest actually attracted many people who were somewhat angry and upset with the system and who then, together with us, pushed it in that direction and therefore allow the government to then use it as a point to say these people are heckling <laughs> and then they had that point to uh, then push it in a different direction so so I think we lost control of the plot partly because we never know how to hold on, hold on to it and partly because the government then just turned it the other way. While the rallies continued so did the court case. In November 2014 the court ruled that Roy had defamed the Prime Minister. During the hearing to assess the amount of damages he was to pay, Roy decided not only to represent himself in court, but to cross-examine Prime Minister Lee Sing Loon. For many Singaporeans, this was unheard of. When I decided that I wanted to cross-examine the Prime Minister, it just felt like it was what you, what you should get to do because, you know, if you are being thrown a suit, you should be able to defend yourself. I think the problem with Singaporeans could be that we are brought up with the idea that you know the leaders have to be respected, they have to be seen in awe and so it's something that you should not uh, go against. But to me, <laughs> it, it, I, I, I mean I didn't look at it like that, yeah. After the whole court uh, process was over, there was a journalist who came up to me and then he told me, do you know that you cross-examined the Prime Minister for seven hours? That was something that everyone was really shocked by. And, you know, you being in the midst of all that, you don't realise how um, big it is to other people. While the court was deliberating on the damages to be awarded, Roy continued to seize his moment in the spotlight. He decided to run for Parliament. He joined the sole opposition team contesting the constituency whose incumbent People's Action Party representatives included Lee Sing Loon himself. There was, there was a point in time during the election and during the rallies where I remember that I said 
that I wanted to be elected into parliament so that I could research, I could write, and I could go into parliament and debate on issues and change policies. And then at that point, people were cheering really loudly. And then that was when I realized that that wasn't what people didn't really want me, me to go into parliament. What they wanted was someone to really look at the issues and who debated on the issues for change. And, and then at that particular point, when I was on that stage, I realized that people wanted an intellectual conversation going about the situation in Singapore to have objective, fact-based changes to Singapore. And if you could go into the parliament, and I actually believe that there was that chance that we could <laughs> go into parliament, um, you would then be able to write and research and to talk about social issues in parliament, to debate on it, and then hopefully to pass policies to protect the people. Roy never had a serious chance of winning. His party and their candidates were flounced, claiming less than 22% of the vote in that constituency. For Roy, this was the moment when the enormity of his fight against the establishment became a reality. Uh, even before the results were announced, we could go to all the counting centres, and I knew that we were not going to win. I had a very quick realisation and I accepted the results because uh, the past few months of fight made me realise that things weren't going to change as well because of the fear, because of people still willing to let things be as it is because they are not ready for change. And the realisation that you couldn't find a job and uh, the reality of it sank in. And then that was when I became, uh, I think, depressed. I don't think clinically depressed, but I could feel that I was thinking to myself, what should I do? I lost that bit of hope because there wasn't that hope and energy that you had with the with the advocacy towards the election you 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 lost you lost that part of the fight because you decided to put that aside and then that's when the fear came in and then that's when i realized and understood the fear that people had and i understood how real it could be for them Depressed, disillusioned and exhausted, Roy decided he had had enough with activism and politics. The court ruled in December 2015 that he would have to pay Lee 150000 Singapore dollars in damages. Arrangements were later made for him to pay in instalments. Unable to find work in Singapore, Roy decided to look abroad. He left his home country for Taiwan in 2016. I'm actually glad to be out. I'm glad to be away from it all. I'm glad to be free. I would actually love to be in Norway <laughs> where I can be more connected with myself. I mean, being, being connected with myself is actually a huge part of me and uh, when I was part of, when I was in that process of activism and being embroiled in, in, all, in all of it, I wanted to I wanted to still be in balance. I wanted to achieve that balance and a part of me was not very happy that I lost that. Roy has set up a new life for himself in Taipei, working as a research assistant in a local university. He says he misses the food back home, but is grateful for this new beginning, a new city where he can keep his head down, do his work and not be recognised on the street. But Roy sometimes reflects on the people and causes he left behind in Singapore. Occasionally, he feels a sense of regret for having let down his supporters and the expectations they had of him. 
I mean, how do I see my role? Even now, I don't really know. Sometimes I think back and I'm very sorry because there were, for example, there was a couple, they came and they had very strong opinions and very good critical opinions about what should be done. And they said they supported me. And then there was uh, two teenagers who came and one wrote a letter to, and then they stayed for an hour listening to me and debating and discussing with me about the issues. They were not completely pro-opposition or pro the PAP. They just wanted to be genuinely interested in the issues. And when I dropped everything, a part of me felt that I let them down. These were the people that I actually felt that I let down because I spoke to them. People who were critical, critically thinking, who wanted to, uh, wanted to participate in that process intellectually. Um, and they wanted to look at someone and had the leader to turn to. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm actually sorry when I left. And sometimes I wonder if I should write on my Facebook to say I apologize. But how do you say that? How do you... And what do you say to that? I'm sorry that I didn't go on. Uh, I didn't know how to. I needed a job. I didn't know how I could balance having trying to have a job and trying to do the activism. I didn't know how else I could do the activism. I didn't know what else I could write. Um, I, I didn't know and I didn't have a plan. And I, I dropped in and I let go because I wanted to get back on with my life. Yeah. yeah. That was Callum Stewart talking of Roy Nung in Taipei. And that's it for this episode. Be sure to look out for New Narrative's Political Agenda next week, our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. Check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com. Subscriptions start at $52 US a year. That's just $1 US a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa.